Welcome to Wealth and Understanding, Conversations with the Riverview Trust Company. In this series, we hope to demystify the financial and estate planning process. We'd like to help our clients and friends make informed decisions that they feel good about. In this episode, we're going to try to answer the question, can money buy happiness? And the answer, for those of you who like to skip to the end of a book first, is, well, sort of. Over the last 20 years, a number of authors have tried to address the question of what makes us happy and what role money plays in that process. These include Happiness, Lessons from a New Science from 2005, Stumbling on Happiness from 2006, Why We Do What We Do from 1996, Happy at Last from 2008, and Authentic Happiness from 2002. More recently, Sean Acor did an outstanding TED Talk and book entitled The Happiness Factor. We've derived data from all of these sources in compiling this podcast today, and all of these authors have an ambivalent view of money's role in making us happy. In addition, researchers have looked at the question as well. Ten years ago, the National Academy of Sciences reported that people's well-being increased with their income, but only up to about $75,000 per year. An article in the July 11, 2020 edition of The Economist magazine examined a Gallup poll of people in 145 countries, asking them about their well-being. And this poll showed a definite correlation between a country's GDP and the well-being of its citizens. For example, residents of countries in the top 10% of GDP scored their well-being as 7 out of 10, while residents in the bottom 10% scored theirs at only 4 out of 10. The people in the high GDP countries were also more likely to feel supported by their families, safe in their neighborhoods, and be trusting of their politicians. I guess uh, that's a relative point. However, there are limits to how happy money can make us. For example, Americans who earn $5 million per year are not much happier than those who earn $100,000 per year. Further, social comparison is an important factor in how happy our money makes us. A majority of people surveyed would rather make $50,000 per year, if those around them are making an average of $25,000, than make $100,000 a year when those around them are making an average of $250,000. Other studies indicate that citizens of Latin American countries are about as happy as Americans, despite the fact that Americans' per capita income is much higher. This may be due, at least in part, to Americans' lifestyle. Eight out of ten of our most prescribed medications are designed to deal with stress. So, money helps, but only to a point. So, why do we have this complicated relationship with money? Even though we know at some point it doesn't make us happier, we still constantly try to acquire more so that we can buy more things in a seemingly endless cycle? Well, the answer may lie in our evolutionary history. As prehistoric people, we had a few very basic needs, the need to find food, the need to find shelter, the need to find protection, and the need to find a mate. And the hormone that helped us with all of that acquisition was the neurotransmitter dopamine. Now, dopamine is the chemical 
in our bodies that wants us to acquire things. Let me give you a great modern example. Have you ever been out shopping or running errands and you made a list of all the things that you had to pick up or things to do? And you got about halfway through the list and you realized that maybe there was something that you'd forgotten on the list. So you go and you buy that thing or do that thing that wasn't on the list. And then after you've done it, you write it down on the list simply to cross it out. What an odd behavior. Well, that's due to dopamine. Every time we check something off of a list, every time we acquire something, we get a little hit of dopamine. Now, dopamine is a powerful tool, but it has two modern-day drawbacks. First, dopamine wants us to acquire things, not to be happy. In fact, dopamine, to some extent, wants us to be unhappy, to be constantly looking for the next thing to acquire. And from a prehistoric perspective, that makes sense. Our ancestors were always looking for food, and a self-contented, happy cave person was more likely to be eaten. Secondly, dopamine is highly addictive. Not only do we get dopamine hits when we acquire things, when we go out and shop and and, and buy, it's also linked to drug addiction and alcohol abuse. And the firing off of the dopamine hit occurs whenever you take drugs or have a drink in that situation. So what this means is that not only does the dopamine drive us to acquire things, regardless of whether we're happy or not, it's also a highly addictive experience. The more we acquire, the more we want to acquire. The lesson here, if nothing else, is simply to be aware of our own impulses and where they come from. It's not that we're bad people because we want to acquire things. We just have a prehistoric system that doesn't always translate to the modern world we live in. Well, in light of that, if money doesn't make us happy, and if we have to avoid the addiction to acquisition, what does make us happy? Well, there are several studies cited in the books that I mentioned earlier on happiness. Uh, Experimental evidence suggests that the happiest people are those who work part-time, who set their own goals, who get involved in their communities and participate in active leisure. That is not just sitting around watching the tube. And control over aspects of a person's life is a very important factor in determining happiness. Uh, People who are self-employed in general tend to be happier than people who feel like they're wage slaves. And this reflects an important point cited in the book, Why We Do What We Do. It says that self-motivation rather than external motivation is at the heart of creativity, responsibility, healthy behavior, and lasting change. And goals that are imposed by others, by our bosses, by our parents, undermine that intrinsic motivation. Self-motivation is improved by the autonomy that we have where we have control over our own lives. Two other factors, in addition to autonomy, are important for our happiness. First, there's competence, which we achieve when we take on and meet hard challenges. And then a third and final factor is relatedness, in which a person works with others and with society. Research shows how these three factors can improve your happiness or take away from it. In one study, 
Researchers focused on the effects of six aspirations. Three of these were external factors, like being wealthy, being famous, or being physically attractive. And three others were internal factors, having satisfying personal relationships, contributing to the community, and growing as an individual. Now, the study showed that the individuals for whom the extrinsic, the external factors, were higher than the internal factors, those people tended to have poorer mental health. And this was true even if the odds of the person achieving one or more of those extrinsic or external factors was pretty high. Another author pointed to seven factors that greatly influence happiness. And the first five are in the order of importance. Family relationships, your financial situation, and I think that means more stability than wealth. Work, community and friends, health, personal freedom, and personal values. To conclude, be aware of just a couple of things. First, know that it's your hormones and not your need for happiness that drives much of your desire for more money and for more stuff. Second, also be aware that there's a steady stream of research showing that internal factors are what truly make us happy. Developing autonomy and control, developing competence in our careers or hobbies, and being more involved with our families and communities. So how do we connect our money with our internal drives and satisfaction? The best way to do this is through the planning process. Developing and executing on a solid financial and estate plan will not only give you a level of satisfaction, it will also help you uh, fire off on the dopamine cylinders by creating a list and then checking items off of it. The planning process should start by identifying your goals and make them very specific and non-financial. So we talked about the seven factors, things like family and personal relationships and meaningful work. Think of those types of things first. Think about whether you have a high level of autonomy in your job. Maybe you don't want to retire as soon as you thought. Or maybe you want to develop a competency in a hobby that you haven't had time for before. Think about whether you will need to work after you retire, not for the money, but just to keep you from going crazy. What does being involved in your community and your family look like? All of these questions need to be answered before you can develop a sound financial plan. Once you've done that, build out your own personal balance sheet. You can think of your own personal affairs as your family business. Any good CEO knows what is in his or her balance sheet, and you should do the same with your personal assets. And then third, figure out the cash flow that's generated from that balance sheet and whether that cash flow is adequate to meet the goals that you have set for yourself when you were thinking about what you wanted to achieve in retirement. By combining the process of list making and checking things off the list, you can get your dopamine fix in. You can give yourself context for the money that you're earning and how it's going to be used in the future. And finally, you can improve those factors that really matter for happiness, the internal factors of family and community, of competence, autonomy, and self-control. 
This podcast was written and produced by Riverview Trust Company, which is solely responsible for its content. Although we've discussed generally some legal concepts, Riverview Trust Company does not provide legal advice. You should consult with your own attorney to decide whether the general ideas that we've presented in this podcast are right for you. Post-production work was done, and our theme music was created by James Klein. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.